it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hey, Damon, how are you? I feel like I haven't spoken to you for a while. We've spoken, usually via this Zoom thing, but I haven't been in any races. But I'm going to one, Tom. I'm going to be there, actually in person. I'm going on an aeroplane. I'm crossing the equator. Uh, that bit's always a bit bouncy. Have you noticed? When you, go across, when you get to about the Amazon somewhere, the plane starts flapping its wings and, and bouncing around and stuff. I don't like that. There's, there's too much time over water on this flight, isn't there? I mean, it, the whole flight is actually over water, really. So I always feel a bit nervous. I, d- I don't understand that. There's no logical reason for me to feel uneasy about being over water as opposed to being over land. So how many flights have you done this year? You must oh, be looking know. forward to putting your feet up, not doing any more aeroplane flights for a while. I don't count. For my own sanity, I don't count. Are you doing that direct flight from Sao Paulo back to, to Abu Dhabi? It's only a week apart again. I'm going Sao Paulo straight to Abu Dhabi next week. How many fl- hours is that? 13-hour flight. No, no, more than that. We did Sao Paulo, Qatar last year, straight to Doha. And that was, I think, 17. And I think this is same sort of territory. No so, No, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm getting a parachute. If I'm in a plane longer than 10 hours, I need to get out. I well, can't. how are you going to get to Brazil? Because it's longer than 10 hours. <laughs> I'll be asleep for most of that. I have these little pills. That are... <laughs> Basically, I, I hope to be totally unconscious for most of the flight. Welcome to F1 Nation, and this is the pre-Brazilian, well it's not the Brazilian Grand Prix, is it? It's the Sao Paulo Grand Prix, Tom. And Tom is going to go, he's going to drag himself onto another aeroplane. I haven't been to a race for a while, so I'm quite excited. And then when we get there, we're going to have to delve straight into some fantastic, we've got, we've got the most important thing is, of course, this has got a, a sprint race in it. So it's actually, well, two races we've got coming. Two races for the price of one. But you, you're still excited, aren't you? Still excited, yes. Good. I'm ex- well, I'm excited for lots of reasons, Damon. I love every Grand Prix. I think each Grand Prix is unique. It's a prototype and it's weird, but people go, oh, now that the championship's done and dusted, what's there to get excited about? In a way, it makes absolutely no difference to me whether the championship is alive or not, because as I've just said, each race is unique and the drivers are going flat out to win that Grand Prix, the Sao Paulo Grand Prix this weekend. And I love it for that. And as you just said, we've got a sprint race on on Saturday. We've got the Grand Prix itself on Sunday. I love the fact this race at Interlagos is now in November. The average rainfall for November uh, in that part of Brazil is 145 millimetres, which is three times what we get in London no, at this no, time no, of no, year. No, so no, no, it's, we're no, going to no, have rain. Not, no, it's not. It's not. I can guarantee you we have had more rain this November than <laughs> in England than they've had in Brazil. But we'll see. I think the race is on. I think we've got our own monsoon going on here. I mean, this is just ridiculous. Anyway, can't wait to get out. Hopefully it's not raining in Brazil when I get there. Damon, before we throw it forward to this weekend, you weren't in Austin or Mexico City. Did you miss me? Yeah, of course. What was your take? It seemed to go very well without me. I, I've noticed Formula 1 can carry on quite successfully no it's not as smooth the dulcet tones of damon hill we miss that 
Well, I, I loved Mexico, I mean, and, and Austin as well, but Mexico particularly because of Sergio and, um, you know, being on the podium and all that stuff, the fans are absolutely fantastic. They, they, they're so enthusiastic. And of course, to have a Mexican driver, it was a huge fiesta. On that topic, I went out to the Forasol during the driver's parade on Sunday morning, just prior to the race. And as Checo came in, 50,000 people went nuts. Checo, Checo, Checo. It was the most extraordinary thing I've witnessed at a racetrack, bar none. It made the hairs on the back of your neck stand up. You could hear it on the uh, on the TV, which is very unusual, you know, to actually hear that sound of, you know, you're used to it when you're watching football or something. But but at a race meeting, normally the, the engines drown it out. But I mean, it was very noticeable, uh, very, very exciting. And and uh, yeah, as you say, hairs on the back of your neck uh, go up because he didn't he didn't win. He couldn't do it. You know, Max is too good. 14 Grand Prix is it this season now? 14 now. Yeah, which is a record. Yeah, yeah. and also actually, he, he, well, he, and he also got the record for the number of points. 416 points and counting so far this year, breaking Lewis Hamilton's record from 2019. But he modestly points out that they have more races these days, you know, so he's trying to kind of play it down a little bit. He does seem to keen not to get the whole thing overinflated but I, I, he's... are you questioning my stats no i'm not questioning your stats i think it's, it's all but it is it as it is it a percentage because of course the winningest driver of all time in percentage terms is alberto ascari in 1952 alberto ascari who won didn't he won five out of six or something like that um there was only a few, i think there was only six races it might be it might be uh six out of seven i don't know but um he certainly did nine on the bounce, but maybe that was that over was two over seasons. Yeah. Two seasons, okay. I think. Yeah, end of one, beginning of the next. But yeah, going back a long way. Yeah. Actually, yeah. Damon, talking of that era reminds me of some very sad news that broke uh, since I got back from Mexico, which is Mauro Forgieri, mm. the technical genius at Ferrari in the 60s and 70s, uh, has passed away, which is very sad. Can you imagine what that guy went through? He was 26 when Enzo Ferrari rang him and said, you are in charge of all of Ferrari's racing activities from sports cars to Formula One, off you go. Age 26. And the magazine used to write for F1 Racing, there was a fabulous interview with him. You didn't do it, did you? There was another chat that did the interview, but he had, they actually went down and chatted with um, no. Mara Foggieri in his fantastic um, uh, period villa um, that he lived in, surrounded by his memorabilia. And he sounded like an absolutely delightful man. And he, he did tell some incredible stories, as you say, how Enzo said to him, right, you're designing the engine and the, the car. And he's going, oh, but I said, Signore, I can't do this. And he's going, of course you can. Uh, and uh, I'm right behind you. So it sounded like he was very supportive and, and encouraging of the young um, Mauro Foglieri. And uh, what an amazing story. He just was given carte blanche to, to basically do what he couldn't do. He didn't know if he could do it yet. He had to get his pencil out and his sharpener. And yeah. Well, and, and did it. Damon, he did it. He won the championship with Surtees in 64. And then, of course, Lauda in the 70s, 75, yeah. 77, Schechter in 79. He then went to Lamborghini and sort of brought them into Formula One with their V12 engine. Incredible career and will be much missed. 
and and part of the keystones well, I mean, of the story of this sport, isn't it? I mean, because it's not just about what's happening right now. It's everything we watch today is sitting on top of this incredible history of these remarkable people like Enzo and like um, Foggieri. And, and they, they are their names that you hear when you're coming into the sport. Somebody goes, oh, yeah, Foggieri, blah, blah, blah. And you go, who's that? And then you find out that these these people who are invested 100% in Formula One. Mm. I was very sad in that um, he was at Monza in 2019 when Jody Schechter ran his Ferrari celebrating 40 years of his world championship. And I met Mauro and said, Mauro, I would love to do an interview with you for the sister podcast that we do uh, here at Formula One called Beyond the Grid. Yes, yes, I'd be very happy, very happy. So he gave me his email address and then I guess maybe a month later I emailed him and didn't get a reply and then tried a few months later and sadly I think he's been ill. Hmm. So it never happened and I never managed to sit down with him for an hour and have a, a proper chat about it all, but undoubtedly a legend. So we've got now this last two races. What can be achieved? You know, we've got the tight battle between McLaren and Alpine still. Second place in the championship. Checo is now five points ahead of Charles Five points Leclerc. ahead. Okay, because of Mexico, right? That okay. third place in Mexico bumped and, him ahead. And also Suzuka, of course. He didn't help himself there, did he, Charles? But anyway, Ferrari, Ferrari all at sea, weren't they? I mean, they weren't able to do perform in, in, in Mexico. Slightly an altitude issue um, to do with their their tiny turbos that they have yeah. um, so they have to run them faster we had the technical illustrator Giorgio Piola on, on the show last week and he was explaining that do you remember back in Austria Carlos Sainz had that horrible fire turbo fire and um, uh, in the race mm -hmm. and he was actually yeah. <laughs> the car was on fire and rolling backwards and it was all getting quite yes, messy you never get out of a car while it's still moving <laughs> yes. you can't, it, it's not you have to get back in again and if it's on fire that's not a good thing so as a result they they detune the engines in mexico and um, the combination of a lack of power and i think there were some aero efficiency problems as well they they were nowhere and and of course we go to sao paulo which is 800 meters above sea level so it's still an altitude race and i'd be fascinated to know what they're going to do in terms of engine tuning can they run it can they give it full beans or me i i would definitely risk it if i were them because charles leclerc didn't have any reliability issues in in austria and it's the same kind of altitude so no but it's a it's a cost that you've got to you've forgotten the cost cap haven't you you can't go blowing up engines everywhere all extra costs and all that so you know they have to be really careful even now they're, but it sounds to me like they're running to the end. You know, they're trying to conserve, lick their wounds a bit and, and, and kind of move on to next year. So they're going to, their drivers are in, basically not getting upgrades, they're not getting development. They're, they're probably going to be conserving their power units as well because it'll, it'll still add up in terms of cost, I, I would imagine, wouldn't it? I mean, if they can't, you know, they blow up an engine, there's still another load of cost for them. Budget cap is a very good point, but they are currently just... 40 points ahead of Mercedes in the Constructors' Championship. Right, Lewis Hamilton has finished second at the last two races. They were they qualified second and third in Mexico. I feel that the juggernaut that is Mercedes is coming. I don't know if they're going to win a race or not, but in terms of if I were Ferrari, I'd be looking over my shoulder. And I don't think it makes for good reading this winter if they finish third behind Mercedes, given the car they've had this year. Okay, how, how do you work this out? Because I'm, I'm not terribly good when it comes to doing very complicated calculations. And as you know, the cost cap is a very complicated calculation because if you do better 
you're penalised for the next year. So is it in Mercedes's interest? You're, you're, so you're penalised in terms of wind tunnel time. So you, you, the better you do, the less chance you have of improving. The guys at the back have a bigger window of improving if they can afford to do it, of course. I know where you're going. So you know what I'm going. They're sitting there going, well, hang on a minute. We might get a bit more wind tunnel time if we don't come second in the Constructors' Championship. It's win or bust for Ferrari. They're not interested. Whether it's second or third, we may as well finish third because we'll get more wind tunnel time. I like I like where you're going with that. Maybe that is... <laughs> no, but you have to... They, they will actually have to be making those calculations because you don't... You know, it may be you don't want to come second and then with red bull now getting uh, an extra 10 percent of a reduction because of their penalty for going over the cost cap they're now down at 63 so you really can make a dent in in red bull's progress We do have action on track and we had some good action in the last couple of races. The Austin Grand Prix was very good because I like that because we actually, at the end, Lewis was in the front, was leading the race. And it's, I think it's the first time we've seen that scenario since Abu Dhabi last year. Um, so, you know, he's back. Lewis is back. He's at the front. Actually, Damon, I totally agree with you. I think we're seeing a fully motivated Lewis. Not to say that he wasn't motivated in the first half of this year, but I think the ramifications of what happened in Abu Dhabi for him would dragged on a bit and I think he arrived at the first race this year just a little bit at sea and I think it took him until mid-season to get fully back to to where he where he should be and where we know what he's capable of and I think now he's just when you talk to him just talking to him, whereas he was a bit deflated in the first half of the year. Now, when you talk to him, he's loving it. And he's talking about another five years in the sport. That is how much he's loving it. And I think Toto Wolf, I'm sure you had this relationship with Frank Williams, Damon, but I think Toto Wolf completely understands that man, knows what buttons to press to get the best out of him. And I think that combination is very powerful. And, and, and Lewis is driving beautifully. I have been there. You're absolutely right. I've been in there and... The boss's relationship with the driver, they do have to understand what buttons to press and how you, how to motivate drivers. And some drivers, it's very easy to upset them. and They go and leave the team, you know, if you say the wrong thing or something like that. So we can be, um, well, just ask my wife, you know, uh, slightly, <laughs> we can go off the handle sometimes at the slightest <laughs> stupid thing. Um, so, uh, you know, emotion runs high sometimes in, in racing drivers. Well, hang on, Damon. While we're talking about how strange racing drivers are, let's bring another one onto the show. Jolian Palmer, former Renault F1 driver. Hello. Hello. The strangest of them all. Joining you here. Great to be here, guys. <laughs> you said it. You'll have to. You'll have to explain to us in what way you are. You are going for the the strangest racing driver accolade. Nah. <laughs> Damon, actually, I think I'm so run of the mill. I don't think I'm taking that out. You're not strange, no. Uh, but we were talking just before you came in, actually, we were talking about the relationship between team bosses and their drivers. And some drivers are, you know, difficult, prickly, maybe sensitive. And, and, and sometimes they have to choose their words carefully. But uh, I drove with Williams and they, they didn't really care about that. <laughs> Basically, you had to like it or lump it and you got on with the job. But um, but yeah, what sort of driver were you then, Jolin? You take criticism badly or motivated by criticism i don't really know i just i took it in my stride really i think you've got to be motivated by criticism haven't you so long as it's fair when you can see what the criticism is and you can understand it then that was fine sometimes you get it and it's and you're like that's a bit harsh i think i've done all right 
but um overall i think it was i think i was all right with with criticism and, and that sort of environment i there are some i've heard some strange tales of drivers not in terms of criticism or anything but in terms of their day-to-day around the paddock there's people that are, would only turn up to work if they had a hairdryer what you heard of that one from the driver <laughs> they needed the first thing they needed was a hairdryer in their driver's room otherwise it was just going to be not happening for them <laughs> Right, come on. We need names. Yeah, this is what this this. He was on the grid within the last five years. He was on the grid within the last five years, yeah. and he didn't have a lot of hair. Uh. Maybe that's why he needed it, right? <laughs> and that's as far as I'm saying. But the whole how you're motivated, it's doesn't it depend on whether it's a fear of failure or a lure of success? If the whole reason you're in it is the lure of success, then I'm guessing criticism would affect you negatively. Whereas if you're if it's a fear of failure and is, is the thing that's driving you, then I guess you might use criticism as a motivator. Well, I think for me, I always just wanted to be the best I can be. So in, in anything, I'm driven by success, but not by the plaudits, by just, I guess that's the end game. If you're a champion, you get the plaudits, but I wanted, you want to be the best you can. So I actually had, sometimes I have a really good race, but I'm happy after a good race for someone to say, but hang on, your outlap was a bit rubbish. Why didn't you do that? And you always, you can improve in some areas always. Whereas if people just pat you on the back when you've done something good, that's nice. It's, it's, it's happy days. But also you, you're you happy to take a bit of bit of feedback to improve the whole time, I think. Well, we were just actually getting on to Max, weren't we, Tom? Um, you know, in terms of what people are saying now about a driver. And, you know, I think that obviously any driver would love to have had the things said about them that are being said about Max now, because basically his performance this year has been pretty sublime, hasn't it? And, you know, you have people drawing attention to his lap time consistency during the Mexican Grand Prix, where he kind of lapped within two tenths of a second, virtually every lap for about 40 laps, you know, and he has been driving so maturely and so serenely. He's reaching that that next level, isn't he? Uh, in terms of what people, how people regard his talent. Damon, where's he better than last year? Well, he's not. He's not having to fight another team for for a world championship. So that that feistiness, if you like, those that feisty challenge. He didn't seem to have the same reaction to his competition with Charles as he's had with with Lewis. There seems to be some sort of. I don't know, difference of opinion between the two of those two, but um, less so with, with Charles Leclerc. So when Charles is, Charles was a title contender, Max seemed to kind of deal with it quite comfortably. But you, you work on all this now, um, Jolyon, don't you? This is your business now. It's analysing with F1. You analyse races and you, I've been down there and you've seen, I've seen, you know, I've been with you analysing old races and race incidents, but you're, you're basically a, an expert analyst, a bit like myself, but um, you're doing it with F1. And, and what do you make of, of Max, how he's changed, if he's changed at all this year? Yeah, I, I think the, the main thing is what you said, really, in terms of the change from last year. He's always been rapid. Last year, he made very few mistakes and was in the tight fight. This year, he's just he's relentless, isn't he? I think the change that I see is not necessarily... It's harder to put the analytics on it, but more just the mentality of Max. And I think we saw it start of the year he turned up and Red Bull didn't have the best car and they broke down twice in the first three races Leclerc was looking like the complete package I think we all probably thought around Imola time if Ferrari going to walk away with this is it that much dominance for Ferrari this year that they're going to wrap it up early and then the turnaround from him to stay calm through all of that to put in the year that he's done with wins from 
anywhere on the grid, taking on so many different challenges through those dominant race victories as well. And doing everything just quite calmly. Occasionally, you get a bit of a feisty radio message still, like after the pit stop in Austin. But generally, I feel like he's able to sort of compartmentalize his thoughts a lot more rather than driving with a deep passion that he was driving with last year with with Lewis in the fights. But I think that I noticed, Damon, this year compared to last year, turning up, I and I just think it's that when you become champion, he was relaxed fighting with Leclerc because he's won that championship already. Yeah. Do you remember Saudi Arabia, that game of cat and mouse just before the DRS detection point? And neither of them wanted to cross it first. Uh, You know, and it was, I just felt that, that was a a man completely at ease with himself and where he stands in the sport. But he did it last year as well, but they just ended up crashing. (laughs) Because I didn't know what you were trying to referring to then, Tom. I thought you were going you were going back to um, yeah the previous season, which was which was <clears throat> very contentious, and of course provoked a lot more kind of um, tension, didn't it, in the field? So what he did it with he did it with Charles in 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 Saudi this year as well. Yeah, yeah. Basically, Charles was Charles was was race. He's a smart driver, and he was racing in Bahrain the same way, fighting for the DRS detection, and then he did it in Saudi, which was a huge thing. And then Max cottoned on and eventually got him and, and won the race. But it was such a different race to how they had in Saudi this time last year when they were fighting for the title at the end of the season. And it was um, Max and Lewis and they were fighting for the detection point, but it was all bodged and there was the big crash into the back and, and the, the drama of it all. It was so different at the start of this year. And Jolien, what about the battle between the Mercedes teammates this year? Um Lewis Hamilton, George Russell. George is still 15 points ahead of Lewis. How do you think that one's going to end? Who's going to be ahead? I I imagine George will close it out just by sheer numbers now. He's got enough points and there's only two races left. And if he just manages to keep his consistency, he'll be there. But I think that doesn't really tell the picture of the Mercedes story, in my opinion. I think George has been impressive. If he beats Lewis, it will be an amazing achievement at Mercedes. But I do think the more the season's gone on, the more Lewis looks like Lewis again. And the start of the year, it looked like there's a really odd moment where everyone was a bit perplexed as to, is George Russell just going to outdo Lewis Hamilton? And for the first six, seven races, it was looking that way, even if there was a bit of bad luck in some of Lewis's safety cars and, and bits and bobs. Overall, George was doing a brilliant job in beating him. As the season's gone on, I think Lewis has got on top. And I think if they do have a title-challenging car next year, I still think it would be Lewis that would that would be their man. I think it's very interesting, this, this pattern. You can look at the races of the past and look at what happens when the driver has got into his 30s. And he's maybe lost a little bit of his sheer blinding speed in, in one lap. And uh, George is definitely very close and, and often quite, you know, and actually out-qualifies Lewis. Uh, this season, uh, but not by a huge amount. It has to be said, you know, tiny fractions. I mean, when, when they're really going for it, there is nothing in it. But when it comes to the race itself, Lewis is nearly always a faster driver over the distance. And I think that's interesting because I think that pattern is definitely played out. If you look over back over time, and you look at someone like Nicky Lauda. When Alan Prost came along, he was blowing him into the weeds and he realised he had to do something different. Um, and Ayrton Senna comes in blindingly fast, but then uh, quite often drops a ball or something happened in, in a race situation. Um, I'm thinking Monaco, you know, he tried to pull out a lead over Alain Prost and, and put it in the wall and stuff. So the younger drivers tend to be really quick over the one lap. 
but the more experienced drivers, you look at Fernando, you know, in the races, he's incredible. He just, you know, he's still quick in, in qualifying, but they have this understanding of how to eke time out in a race. And quite often, Lewis is still creeping ahead of George in the last few races. I know George has said he's had problems with his brakes, so he couldn't get things working quite how he liked. But uh, he has, he's done an incredible first season with Lewis but in some ways you could say he was fortunate not to get Lewis on on top form at the start of the season I think that the the interesting thing as well for me is whenever Mercedes are in with a chance of a win is Lewis there is not George so when the when the Mercedes car seems a bit absent through a weekend it's very close between the two often George can be ahead and that's certainly how it was at the start of the year but every single time we're looking at maybe Mercedes can win this race as the race is unfolding, there's only Lewis in the car there. And that's maybe just a little bit of an experience still for George when the car's at its best to maximise it. I'm sure he'll improve as well next year. But that's where I still think you've got Hamilton ahead, even if the points don't show it. Like the tennis player who always wins the big points, right? Yeah, it's, it's a bit that, bit like that. But then he's not going to come out on top of the championship, I don't think. What about the driver market, Jolien? Your old buddy, Kevin Magnussen, is uh, still waiting to find out who's going to be alongside him at Haas next year. And it seems that Nico Hulkenberg or, or Mick, uh, Mick Schumacher, are the guys most likely. What are you hearing? I think it's going to be a Jolien Palmer teammates reunion down at Haas. Kevin Magnussen, Nico Hulkenberg together for next year. Famously didn't like each other at the time, but it seems like they do now. So good to be pleased about that. And a real curveball. I spoke to Nico in the in the summer and he was saying, I think I'm done here. I've got nothing more. I don't think I'm going to get back on the grid. And suddenly this opportunity comes to him. And um, you can see why. With Haas needing or wanting experienced drivers, he's shown what he can do. A bit harsh maybe on Mick, but um, I think he's ready for it as well to Nico to jump back in. And, and as long as he's motivated, yeah, it'll be a good lineup. How quick is Kevin? If you were going to compare or measure mixed performances is Kevin really at the top end of uh, of Formula One um, I wouldn't say that but I, I mean I think he's, he's been around long enough to to benchmark him as a good midfielder maybe in the same way as a sort of Checo the top end I think is a really high level between your Max your Lewis your Charles George these guys and I wouldn't put Kevin in that bracket but I think he's a really established good midfielder which is why he was brought back, basically. And I don't think he would see himself now as in that absolute top tier. But nonetheless, great benchmark for Mick. And what the reason I feel a little bit, it's a little bit tough on Mick, is that he's been actually really close and a lot closer than probably, well, I don't know, what were you thinking, Damon? Were you thinking that he'd be struggling more compared to K-Mag this year? Certainly early on he was. Uh, he was a little bit, but I think it's, he's, he's lifted his game. I think Kevin has definitely made him realise there's there's more I need to do, but I need to be better. But I think he, he wasn't helped by having a not such a strong teammate uh, last time. Um, but um, uh, yeah, I think he's improved. I think he's still dropping the ball and costing the team uh, a lot of money when he you know, unfortunately damages the car. So that was the issue. Whether you put in, whether you stick with him and hope it's going to turn around at some point, or whether you stick in someone who's an experienced old hand like um, Nico, you know, where they are, really a guy that crashes the car is not what they need. 
I, I think for Mick, he's almost like he's, he's had a rookie season because last year was such a writer for the whole team. But yeah, the big crashes have counted against him. And I think if you're, to, if you're talking short term, which you obviously are, with thinking about bringing Nico back, one or two years, he will score more points, I think, than Mick. I think he's a, he's, I think he's, he's got experience. I think he's probably quicker at the end of the day. So long as he's motivated in the return and he's not going through the motions at this stage, if he's motivated and hungry for it to try and bring the team forward, I think Hulkenberg is, is probably going to come out as the, as the better shot. And, and Hulkenberg was incredibly impressive when he subbed for Vettel at Aston Martin in the first two races. No winter testing and just jumped straight in and was immediately on Lance Stroll's pace. So that would suggest the motivation is there. The talent's there. He's so talented. That's what I, would, I think about Nico. He's, he's a hardworking driver, working alongside him. He was unbelievably quick, but he would also put in a shift with the engineers afterwards. And it was, uh, having worked with some drivers before, it was a case of, wow, this guy's a real pro, uh, which is probably why Aston Martin loved having him around. And then he can jump in a car and he is, he's, he's a really talented driver. So he can jump in. I'm surprised his fitness and his sharpness was as good as it was early in the season because I don't think he was expecting to be racing at all. But that's what I think that's the lure for Haas, isn't it? That this guy can just jump into a car and, and ring its neck straight away. So you think the deal is done, Jolie? I don't think the deal, I don't, I don't, I'm not confirming the deal is done, but it, everything points to that, <laughs> doesn't it? Everything points to it. And Stoffel Van Dorn is now taking Hulkenberg's reserve driver Aston Martin I mean it's I'm not announcing it I was wondering I I was wondering if we were putting two and two together and and making five because of the uh, the Stoffel van Dorn announcement but it seems that with Stoffel there there isn't a job for for Nico Holgenberg next year and and I think Gunther's just this whole big crash thing for Mick has been a Gunther's not liked it as he as he wouldn't as a team principal I think that that is the major thing counting against him because actually pace-wise, pretty 50-50 between Mick and K-Mag as the season's got on. So second two-thirds of the year, take away that first chunk where K-Mag was really impressive coming back. There's not much to separate them in terms of points or pace. It's just the big crashes that, that Gunter's not liking. i never forget the one in Japan at the end of FP3 and he just on a practice start and was making his way back to the pit lane and he and he took took two corners off it, and ouch, Gunter's face then. Wow, this is where you bring in the the question, the awful question, which is that if racing drivers had to pay for the damage, how much damage would there be? <laughs> I can remember leaving Jordan with piles and piles of crashed bits, and thinking to myself, God, I'm glad I don't have to pay for that. Um, but uh, <laughs> anyway, you do at the beginning though, don't you, Jolly? And your dad pays. Yeah, like yeah, <laughs> you 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 learn pretty quick not to, well, not to. But then the problem is that the you gotta push the limits because if you're trying to be conservative, then you you just end up being slow. So you have to risk the crash if you're if you're coming in, if any level of racing driver. You can't. It's a nice thought to be sort of thinking about the damage and oh no, it's not good the cost for the team. But if you're thinking about that as you're driving, you're going to be terrible. It's the old spinal tap thing, isn't it? You know, if you've got a driver who's on twelve, you can always dial him back to ten. But if you've got a driver who's on eight and they're still crashing on eight, you can't. You, when they try to get to ten, you know, that's that's when you've you've got to say, okay, I'd rather have a faster driver and tell him to drive slower. But you know, the thing is also with with Mick. Where he's crashed, he's crashed at Jeddah in Monaco and that wet one in Japan. The wet one in Japan was 
Oh, it was a tough one because it was there was nothing. It was just getting the car back to the pit. So that was let's call that an anomaly. Cold tires, bit of brain fade. But Monaco and Jeddah, two massive crashes. I can't think of Mick having that many other spins or moments through the year. Whereas you look at someone like Charles, who's been in the wall in Paul Ricard in Imola. Lewis hit the wall in Singapore uh, in Austria qualifying. But it was just the places where Mick's crashed as well that if you're going to mm. crash anywhere on the calendar, don't do it at the swimming pool in Monaco and definitely don't do it in Jeddah anywhere, which no. is where he's where he's done it, which is massively counts against him as well. So the final sprint of the year. Well, it was pretty good last year at Interlagos, so I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, it was. A, it Perhaps was, we need Lewis Hamilton to start at the back again. Well, it was very tense last year. You had this championship. You had to. He had to close the gap on Max, and he um, drove this unbelievable, just ridiculous. I mean, in the first sprint, he overtook. What was it? How many cars did he overtake? Twelve or something? Fifteen, I think. Fifteen, and he over, and basically added up after that. He had to overtake loads more again in the other in the next race. So I think he overtook everyone about three times. But that's an, <laughs> that's an exaggeration. But I mean, yeah, he, he, you know, it was it was necessary. But then we had the the track limit episode. I hate to drag it up again, but there was the max track limit pass, you know, or preventing Lewis from passing. So we'll see how much water has been under the bridge since last year when it comes to Interlagos Sprint Race this year. Um, but it's a track where you can overtake, thankfully. So we will see a lot of passing and a lot of drama. But um, And also, championship over, it could be a bit of a scrappy one. I hope it'll be a scrappy one because we haven't had many scrappy ones this year, have we? What do you mean by scrappy? Well, a few incidents, a few safety cars, something that you're not expecting. The only surprise podium we've had this year is Norris and Imola. Last year, we had Ocon winning. You had Alonso hit the podium. You had Vettel and Gasly on the podium. Uh, Ricardo won a race, blimey. It was all happening last year. This year, you've had Lando Norris creep onto a third place in Imola, which was another sprint weekend. So I think you need a bit of a scrappy one because otherwise you're looking at a, a, a max probably win because the Red Bull car, and certainly with long straight, will be will be very quick. Hopefully we get a, just a great race. It's a good racetrack, isn't it? With overtaking possibilities, the centre S straight into turn four, nice little line up there. Do you think any of the drivers will be going into this race thinking, well, what's what's to be, you know, what can be achieved because the championship's resolved in many ways? Yeah, I, I, and I think there will be, there is an element of burnout as well. When you've done 20 races in the year, there are, there are many teams and drivers that are still fighting for things. So you've got the Alpine-McLaren uh, battle. So their drivers are going to be so honed into that fight. Alfa Romeo, Aston Martin, all those drivers further back, if they've got a chance of some points, they will be huge still for their Constructors' Championship. And they will be absolutely in the know about that and who their rivals are. But there'll be a few in there who have done 20 races. Their future's set for next year. They're not really racing for anything other than just the fun of it. So that's why I think ever since the titles were wrapped up, you're thinking, is there going to be a little bit more, a higher chance for some, for some carnage now? And then the next corner we had, George Russell spinning out the pole man in Austin. But it's just it's just not quite happened yet. But I think that's because a lot of them, there's still much to play for. It's just Max, really, that can put his feet up and so can Red Bull. I'm intrigued to know how well Daniel Ricciardo goes this weekend because he seemed in tune with his car for the first time in ages last time out in Mexico. And has he found something? 
Was it a one-off? I mean, he was pretty good in uh, Melbourne back at the start of the year and then it dropped off. He was good last weekend. Can he keep it going for these last two races? Yeah, I'd be I'd be keen to see him do well, actually. I'd like to see the old Dan and Ricardo back. And um, yeah, it might be, it is too late in the day to do something for next year, but he's sort of, I don't know, he had a smile on his face, didn't he, in, in Mexico? He was sort of suggesting that there might be this reserve driver kind of, situation with with mercedes um, i'm surprised which... he's smiling all that much about that to be honest given the for the daniel <laughs> well, Ricciardo listen, <laughs> that we know and love is the guy that is there racing in the way that he did in mexico and he's charging through the field and he's chucking in some lunges and he's he loves the wheel-to-wheel racing of it and it was so good to see a spring in his step after that grand prix and it will i think it'll be really important to him that he goes out with these next two in that tone because then when you've got a year on the sidelines you can think back to that and not your your terrible nine months before but i don't the third driver thing's strange to me fast forwarding the crystal ball and lewis wins the championship in 2023 and he's got eight world titles does he retire that's could be a scenario where matt where but then then daniel ricardo is not exactly a spring chicken is he now you know he's and are you putting daniel in if lewis does suddenly retire at the yeah. end of next year having won the title and I, I don't think you are. Let's face it, McLaren aren't putting him in. Alpine didn't want him. And Mercedes at the top end, fighting for titles, is going to want to put him in at the end of the two years that he's had. I don't think so. So I think the way that he rebuilds his career from here is to be on the grid and get results because you can't get results as a third driver. That's the that's the really frustrating thing of it. So, Jolien, if, if you'd been Daniel, you would have either walked away and never look back, or you might have taken the Haas drive, for example? I think it depends. Because I'm not Daniel, I don't know what is going on in his head. And after, certainly this year, of just being beaten and slightly humbled, really, by Norris at McLaren and the vibe of the of the whole team clearly going against him and they got his contract out early. And maybe that, I know from my experience of being dropped, basically, by Renault, you know, it's a little bit demoralizing. Maybe he's a bit done with, he wants a bit of time out and he wants to just relax for the first time in over a decade in his career. So if that's the case, then maybe a third driver role is not bad for him. But if he wants to still prove himself and he thinks he can get back on the grid and he's still got the energy to go for it, for me, the option is a Haas seat or a Williams seat that was until Sargent was was confirmed there. Because they're a bit like Alex Albon now. Alex Albon was was... In Red Bull, he was looking like the next big thing, had a bad year against Max, got dropped. And now he's looking like, again, you put him in the bracket of a really solid midfielder. Ah, JP. But he did a third driver role for a year and bounced back into the Williams. That's what Daniel wants to do. He was also younger. He was also younger at the time. (laughs) So you never say never. But for me, if you're Daniel Ricciardo, you've got to show what you can do again because everyone's remembering this from McLaren stint but that's the anomaly in his career everything else has been really class from Ricardo at Toro Rosso at Red Bull at Renault all really good but just this McLaren weird patch is what people are remembering now and thinking oh maybe he's a bit cooked maybe is he is he as good as he ever was he could get back into another car even if he has to go further down the grid Who's to say that the Haas is going to be a back of the grid car next year? Anyway, to be honest, they got some they got some big sponsor in, haven't they? And with the with, you know second year and these regulations where you can actually uh, guys at the back can have more scope to do more development, um, it could be. I mean, I I would 
I, if I was advising him, I'd say take the Haas drive. But you know, I'm sure he probably knows much more about his situation than I do. But on the just on the face of it, and listening to what Julian was saying, I'd agree with that. Yeah, but Damon, you'd be saying take the Haas drive and don't forget my fifteen percent is what you'd actually be. What saying. What are you trying to paint me as? I mean, Tom, <laughs> I am not a, a non-mercenary driver. Uh, I mean, listen, listen. If I was taking fifty, I'd be managing more drivers than I do now, which I don't manage any. So, but um, anyway. No, I think, yeah, it's free advice. There you go, Daniel, free advice. <laughs> Questions, please. Damon Hill, do you think it's time maybe you should change your approach to racing? <laughs> well, I don't know even how to start answering that question, but anyway. It's the Williams leading, Damon Hill. Some more questions, please. Damon, were you happy with the start? Damon Hill, congratulations for this winning demo. You must be satisfied. Any questions? Yeah. Well, Damon, it must have been absolutely gutting that last couple of laps. Damon, it looked like he had it really under control. Some more questions, please. Damon Hill has done a fantastic job. Question one from Rodrigo in Brazil. Hello, Damon. How are you? I am a Brazilian fan. I would like to know how was a race against and race with Ayrton Senna in your time. Thank you. Racing against Senna. Um, clearly, the reputation preceded him and not me. So I think he probably he was probably not too sure what to make of me. But uh, he'd uh, successfully dispatched with just about everyone else. Um, so probably didn't worry too much about about me and I, I'm, I'm very conscious that that Ayrton was is an absolute massive legend and almost living god in um, Brazil but um, you know for me as a racing driver I had to take the view that I'm out there to race everyone and I did get a ticking off from Ayrton when I went to Imola because he didn't like one of my moves and he sent Julian Jacobi round to get me after the race so he could have a word with me and this is when I was teammates with Alan Prost and I was in the Williams he was still in the McLaren I went round to his motor and he said, oh, you know, you're very young. And you know, I was actually, I was six months younger than him. So I wasn't very young at all. So, and he's saying, you know, it's, you're new to Formula One and you need to you know, realise there are some things you can do and some things you can't do. Well, I, I was very familiar with uh, Ayrton's uh, racing history, as everyone was. And, and I, I was trying to rack my brains to think of something I'd done that he hadn't. Um, so uh, anyway... Uh, he was letting me know that he was watching me. But later in the year, at, um, you know, in... Um, sorry, actually, it was earlier in the year in Brazil, wasn't it? Uh, we raced in, in 93. I think uh, he was quite quietly pleased. I think I finished ahead of Alain, didn't I? Not only did you finish ahead of Alain Prost in that Brazilian Grand Prix of 93, you fought Senna for victory. Damon Hill into the pits. So I suspect that they've uh, called him in. And uh, the question is, can Senna... Crucial pit stop for Damon Hill. And he's got away pretty well from uh, from the stop too. And Senna coming up the straight now. This is going to be fantastic because Damon Hill is rejoining the circuit as Damon Hill exits the pit lane. He is ahead of Ayrton Senna. And Senna is challenging for the lead. And Senna leads. Oh, Senna uses all his superior experience and takes the lead in the Brazilian Grand Prix from Damon Hill. To feel his way into the towers. Damon has done the right thing, quite honestly. Rather than fight Senna, Senna already had a lap and a half experience in the conditions, and that was good driving by Damon. And it will be his.
his 37th Grand Prix win and Ayrton Senna, to the delirious delight of his countrymen, wins in Brazil. That was one hell of a podium. There was you, Ayrton Senna and Michael Schumacher. Yes, uh, and then I think, uh, if I remember rightly, Fangio came up to present him with the trophy. So I've got a picture of me on the on the podium with these legends, and, and there's little old me, um, you know, uh, and was it my second race or something? <laughs> I don't know for the team. Ah, dear. But um, yeah, heady days. Interlogs is a great racetrack. There's, you know, you would never go and design a racetrack like that now. They just wouldn't do it. But it is, it always produces. Um, fantastic racing and and to drive on it because it's so difficult and bumpy and tricky it gives the opportunity to people like Ayrton you know to really great drivers to actually eke out extra time over everyone else and um, yeah when it came to 94 and we raced there I just don't know how Ayrton he was miles quicker than me I couldn't hold on to the car but Ayrton drove just out of his skin unfortunately um, he couldn't hold on to it forever but you know, he was in a totally different league and I just, you know, I had to really take a deep breath and go, right, there's something this guy's capable of doing that I have no concept of. I'm going to have to do much better. Um, so being compared to Ayrton in the same car, he absolutely blew me into the weeds on that uh, race meeting. Jolien, as a young driver coming through, who, who was the person you were looking up to? Was, was it Senna? Uh, Fernando we definitely was the driver that I think I felt like I could learn the most from as because I was a young driver coming through and I started my career in 2005, six. So this was when Alonso was winning his titles. And it was actually the, the period when he went to Ferrari that I was in Formula 2, GP2. And I thought he was driving at the top of his game. Even if he wasn't the quickest driver, he was a driver that always found a way to be maximizing the potential of that car to be nearly winning the titles in 2010, 2012. So he was probably actually the driver that I looked up to the most when, when I was coming through and that I was trying to learn the most from watching F1. Thank you, Rodrigo. Let's move to question two. Hello, Damon. This is Roman from Poland, watching Formula One since 1991. I have a question to you. You were the only one driver in the history of Formula One with number zero on the car. That Did it mean anything for you? Are you number obsessed or not? What number will you pick this time when you were running Formula One? Because there are now drivers can pick whatever number they want. Cheers from Poland. Yes, Roman, uh, that's correct. Yes, I did race with the, the number, if you can call it zero. Um, but it was the figure zero because the number one and the team that I drove for, I'd won the championship, it was Williams. Um, but the world champion had left the sport. And in those days, we didn't have personalised numbers, so we couldn't choose. So the, the entry would have had to have put uh, clearly the, the the guy who was second or the guy the guy who drove the team that got the number they couldn't have the number one because there was no world champion it was Nigel Mansell and he'd gone to America and so they put me down a zero but I don't know whether that meant I was ahead of Alain Prost or or just a nothing I was a zero I was a nothing <laughs> a complete nothing <laughs> and uh, and then the next year what happens Alain goes off and leaves a zero as well so I, I don't know if so, yeah, basically, I think it was 94. Did I have a zero on then as well? I think I might have done as well again. So it was double zero. Did you have any say as to whether it was a zero? No, I spoke, no. I, I, did, I did speak to Bernie about that. I said um, something along the lines of, could I have my own personalised number? And he went, no. 
Let's slide into that. I like the idea of zero <laughs> being your lucky number. Yeah. And you've just gone out and just gone, I'll go for zero. Well, there, there's, interestingly, um, my dad drove a prototype Rover turbine in Le Mans, and that was number zero, zero. So I'm not the only hill to have raced with a zero. The other part of the question was, what number would I choose? I don't have any superstitions about numbers. I mean, I think number one is quite nice. I, I, Lewis likes his 44. He doesn't like number one. But I think Max did the right thing taking number one. Number one looks good, but you have to earn it. That would be your choice now. Oh, I was hoping you were going to say zero. Don't, zero is a kind of insulting number, isn't it? Don't you think? I mean, it's sort of, it literally means nothing or infinity, depending on how you look at it. Jolien, if you were racing now, what number would you choose? Uh, well, I'd, I'd take my uh, take my number 30 back, the glorious number 30 that no one else has copied. Maybe they don't like it now. It's a, it's a bad omen. But I, I actually, I'm so un... Uh, fussed by lucky numbers and lucky stuff so number 30 was just it was basically given to me uh because i was the reserve driver at lotus reserve drivers get given a number they have to run mine was 30 i looked at it i thought looks a nice number it's got a zero in there so i know damon hill will be happy with it and i ran with it (laughs) i bet you didn't think that about the zero but anyway it's very kind of you to say so oh and you probably thought Daniel Ricciardo will be happy because it's got a three in it. Well, exactly. I'm keeping everyone happy. It's my two favourite drivers (laughs) from the past combined. Happy days. So those are all really good questions. And I'm sure you've got more racking your brains and you're dying to ask. So put them on a voice note and send it to askdamon at f1.com. Jolien, it's been wonderful to have you on the show. Thank you so much for your time. Pleasure as always. Are you coming to Brazil? I am coming to Abu Dhabi. For the big party, end of the year. Brilliant. Well, look forward to seeing you then. Before you go, you want a bit of jeopardy in Brazil. So give us your podium that you'd like to see. Oh, well, look, if I'd like to see it, then it's probably going to be a Fernando Alonso victory. Failing that, a Mercedes victory to get their one in for the year. Yeah, which driver? Which Mercedes driver? Either I, If either Mercedes driver win, that's going to be a good race. But let's go with, let's go with Hamilton getting his win for the year. Who are you? Who are you wanting to see? Oh, uh, me. Yeah, yeah. Well, now you ask. Uh, we all like a bit of Jeopardy. And I think, um, do you know, I think one of the reasons we get Jeopardy in Brazil is A, the weather. Damon and I were talking about this earlier. In November, Sao Paulo gets 145 mil- millimetres of rain, which is three times what we get in London at this time of year. So it's going to be wet. And I think the fact that it's a really short lap which means there's a lot of lapping of slower cars. And there's just, you're right, there's going to be a bit of jeopardy. And Lando Norris is going to win his first Grand Prix this weekend. Make sure you tune in to witness that. Wow. What about Daniel Ricciardo wins? Wow. What a story. That would be a story. Damon? Sprint race. Anything can happen. Could be. Lewis could win. I'd like to see that happen. I don't like the idea of him going through an entire season and not having had a victory. I think that'd be a bit of a blot on his amazing career. But uh, um, we all know the story. So he's not for want of trying. But it would be good to see a race between him and, and, and Max again. All right. Brilliant. Jolien, thank you so much for your time. Great to have you on. Cool. Cheers, guys. All right, Damon. It's time to get on that plane. Dinner Friday night? Yeah, well, definitely. What kind of food do you like? Um, Brazilian. What is the what is traditional Brazilian steak, I think, isn't it? Vegetarian, well, so the churrascaria, on. isn't it? But Damon, they have huge salad bars in those churrascarias, so we'll both be good. Elicio salad bar, they used to call him. 
But that's a joke. That's an in joke if anyone remembers Alicia Salazar. Sorry, Alicia Salazar. Uh, but anyway, uh, I'll see you there then, Tom. And uh, safe flight. And uh, we'll be back again after the Grand Prix. Yeah, we'll be back on Monday, the 14th of November, with the last word on the Sao Paulo Grand Prix. Otherwise, from me and Damon, thanks for listening. So that was this edition of F1 Nation, which is produced by Formula One in association with Audio Boom Studios. 